0: Listener supported, WNYC Studios.
1: It's politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.
2: I called the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. They are the enemy of the people.
1: For the last four-plus years, Donald Trump has dominated political news coverage, whether in 140-character Twitter bombs unwieldy press conferences or campaign events staged at the White House, his ability to be the center of the story and change the narrative both to his benefit and his detriment has been unprecedented. Part of this has been a furious and sometimes dangerous war with the quote unquote media.
2: Read his laptop and you know who's a criminal? You're a criminal for not reporting it. You're just a lightweight. Don't talk to me that way. Don't talk to, I'm the president of the United States. Don't ever talk to the president. It's all a, a hoax. It's a scam. And you know who helps them?
1: These people right back here, the media. But Donald Trump's term is winding down, and soon there'll be another man in the White House. Joe Biden, of course, is no stranger to this world. He's been in politics for decades and has experience with the White House press corps. And we know that the Obama administration made many questionable and debatable choices in how they handled media and individual journalists. With so much of the 2020 campaign done virtually, Biden was able to avoid much of the traditional back and forth with the press assigned to cover him. And lots of folks criticized the campaign and the media for not pushing harder to get Biden in front of reporters. But we were able to see flashes of his frustration with questions and topics he didn't want to answer. Do
0: you think it was wrong for him to take that position? knowing that it was really because but, but, that you, company you, wanted access to you.
3: Well, that's not true. You're saying things you do not know what you're talking about. No one said that. Who said that? Why, why attack Sanders? Why, 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 why,
0: why, why? Yeah, you're at you're at getting the, nervous, deal.
1: man. Just calm down. It's OK. A core part of Biden's campaign promise was a return to normalcy. And inherent in that is a more traditional communications team and relationship with the press. So what does that mean for newsrooms? This week, we assembled a group of people in the news media who are thinking about just that.
3: My name is Rick Klein. I'm the political director at ABC News.
2: I'm Caitlin Conant, and I'm the political director at CBS News.
3: I'm Ben Smith. I'm the media columnist for The New York Times.
1: Rick and Caitlin were on the show back in August to talk about how their networks were preparing to cover what we knew would be an election like no other. I started out asking them to reflect on how things went.
2: That CBS News, and I think most of the networks did this, but we invested time and resources into covering really what was going on at the state level in terms of getting to source up with secretaries of state, know what was happening, what the rules would be, and to prepare and lay the groundwork for the scenario that we did find ourselves in, which is that it was going to come down to Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, where we weren't able to call it on election night, and because of the way that they processed and counted votes, you saw what many described as a red mirage, which appeared that Trump was leading that night because in-person votes, a lot of those voters were Republican. And the mail-in votes, which were from urban, more populated areas, which tended to be Democrat, it took states longer to count those. Between our campaign reporters, Major Garrett, we had covered that a lot. And I'm curious to hear what Rick says next, but I do think there were a lot of people who hadn't been following the ins and outs of this, like we had, um, who are living and breathing this every day. And I think it turned out that many of them went to bed um, on Tuesday night thinking one thing, and a few days later, there was a different result. And I can't really fault them for that. What we have to do is continue to explain why that happened um, and to have information out there and have a responsibility to educate.
1: Rick, what about you?
3: It surprises me that it it played out almost exactly like we thought it would. Uh, Election night itself, in terms of the red mirage and the blue shift, that happened. And we said it would happen. We said it a lot on our air. I don't think anything can fully prepare an audience for actually seeing it. We actually made some changes even in the guts of our graphics to try to make sure that we weren't casting forward a result that was inaccurate. And we spent a lot of time on election night hours you know explaining why what you're seeing in terms of the vote coming in isn't necessarily reflective of the final outcome and then we spent days afterward explaining in detail that I have never seen before on a on television broadcasts the intricacies of what our decision desk was thinking and what the results were and weren't and what the legal processes were. And ultimately, we were talking about provisional ballots that were cast in a certain way in certain counties in Pennsylvania at a level of detail that, again, if you're watching, it, maybe it goes over people's head, But I think people are really interested in it. And you know, we, we spent time on our on, on election night. We had someone working demographic boards. We had someone with exit polls. We had Nate Silver and the 538 team. With their analysis, we were, again, bringing in the, these different facets of it and explaining to people over the course of several days, because it wasn't until Saturday uh, that our network and and Caitlin's network and and other major news organizations projected the presidency for Joe Biden. And I'm I'm very gratified to know that we've told every turn of that story. And frankly, that we haven't overreacted to things that the losing candidate has said and done. You know, we, we saw this week that, you know, extraordinary 46 minute Facebook posting, highly edited from the White House speech. And the President of the United States gives what he says is the most important speech of, of his career. And he does it for 46 minutes from the White House. And you know, we covered it as as if it was another another volley in this. We didn't overreact. We didn't, you know, if you watch David Muir's show that night, you had some light touches around it, but it was basically him giving voice to things that have been disproven in court or that he tweets all the time. It really wasn't that that newsy. And I feel like from our perspective, we've found something of a balance. It's never perfect. It's always difficult in the in the hour by hour. And I'm hopeful that that can continue going forward through this process and then through whoever comes next. Joe Biden will be president on January 20th. We expect that you know, if President Trump wants to continue his political career and, and announce for 2024, he's not going to go away. He's still going to be making a lot of noise. I got a text from my mom just today actually saying, have you guys thought about how you're going to handle him when he's an ex-president and he does these things? <laughs> because you guys should really think about that. i like, right, okay, mom, we're, we're thinking about those things.
1: Ben, I want you to weigh in on and And maybe you can help Rick answer his mom's question about, have they thought through this? <laughs> your one of your columns, you ended by saying the question now is whether the electorate and we in the media can break our addiction to the Trump news cycle. What do you think?
4: I mean, I so I wrote like a pretty panicky column in August.. Um, like about how we were totally going to screw up the election. And actually, I think people, as he said, did a really, and as Caitlin said, did a a pretty good job of being, um, you know, very, very, very explicit and focused on like the mechanics of voting, you know, did as good a job as you can do and still huge chunks of the country don't care and weren't listening. So that's sort of the caveat here. I do actually think maybe to a degree that I didn't even expect that Trump's getting a little boring. I mean, I think it's a lot of this, you know, what is news is a gut sense of what's interesting to you and to your audience. His power is every day seeping away. And it's not as interesting when a former politician tweets crazy stuff as when somebody with enormous power tweets crazy stuff. And he's still the president of the United States. He has enormous power. But, you know, I think the sort of constant challenge in the White House was on one hand, he's saying these crazy things that are you know, that are unlikely to happen and that are out of touch with reality and even with his own administration. And yet he's President of the United States. Um, and so you've sort of got to wrestle with that. I think when he's not President of the United States, it's going to be easier to to dismiss it. And it isn't it actually just isn't as interesting and important. I mean, the important story is going to be his, I would say, fight for control of the Republican Party, except that he seems to totally control the Republican Party. And there is a political story that, you know, in the old days of newspapers would live on page you know, A20 about the sort of like ongoing Donald Trump consolidation of power in the Republican Party and who's going to be the RNC chair and what jobs do his kids get. But that's not that big a story.
1: But I'm going to stick with you for a minute because this was also part of your column. And then I want Rick and Caitlin to weigh in on this, too, about coverage. Now, what's going to be like to cover Joe Biden? First, I would love to get, Ben, your assessment of the media coverage of Biden. I mean, we didn't see a lot of him in 2020. And we know that there were a lot of folks, including many Democrats, who thought that was a good thing, that he was able to kind of, thanks in part to COVID, thanks in part to the fact that Trump took all the political oxygen, he was able to sort of hang out in the background, let the race be a referendum on Trump. We didn't hear him give gaggles. We didn't see him at, a, at rope lines. Do you think that that was a mistake, that the press didn't push enough to see Biden enough to, to get him on record to get briefings.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's our job to push, right? Like, and I think that there definitely there were times when, I mean, again, people were also though, there was a press corps camped out, you know, trying to get questions answered and Biden was ignoring them. So there's a limit to what you can do there. And also, I mean, Trump was, in fact, incredibly open with the press, like he gave long rambling press conferences right. and answered questions that got shouted at him and reacted constantly on Twitter and, you know, often spoke to his favorite Fox News people, but also, his administration just leaked like a sieve, and it, which is great, right? And kind of accustomed us to a level of transparency that I'm sure Biden is going to try to walk back. But it's also just true that Trump is this extraordinary phenomenon and story and was a bigger story. Biden was, was a conventional Democrat running with basically conventional Democratic policies. And it is important to figure out where he stands on police reform. But it's within a fairly narrow, you know, it's, it's, it's within the old, like, you know, politics being played between the 40 yard lines.
3: I was going to add to that. I mean, I think the degree to which our brains have been rewired by Trump and the Trump era can't be can't be overestimated. There was a headline in Ben's newspaper this week that reported accurately, so far as we know, that that Joe Biden was not planning to fire the FBI director, and I, I thought isn't it? How is that a story? Well, it is a story because Donald Trump did fire the FBI director, but you're not supposed to fire the FBI director. They get ten-year terms. And, you know, Obama kept the FBI director that that he inherited from Bush and gave him an extra two years, in fact. But the fact that we're we now report as news that he won't do something that was that is viewed widely as outrageous and outside, you know, coloring outside the lines tells you how much we're reacting and, and thinking about things differently because of Donald Trump. And that isn't to say that Joe Biden was, you know, give us as much access as we wanted. Ben's right. We were there every day. It was a, it was a pandemic as well. So it was, you know, it was difficult. Uh, it was easier for him to hide away from us because of the nature of of what we were dealing with. But to judge Joe Biden by all of the norms that Donald Trump broke, I don't think is fair to Joe Biden or fair to democracy. I, and I think where we have to recalibrate, and I think where our challenge really lies is is remembering You know, coming back to where we came at this as journalists, as people who cover politics and and believe in the process of, of political journalism that there are norms that that are important to establish. And just because something that Joe Biden does won't be as outrageous, uh, you know, on a scale of one to 10, it won't even register on on the Trump outrage scale, doesn't mean that we shouldn't be covering it doesn't mean we should be asking questions about it doesn't mean we shouldn't be pointing things out to our to our viewers and our readers. And that to me is the is the most difficult thing mm-hmm. that we're going to wrestle with is that we've had four years, five years plus of of, of Trump on the national stage that is just changed our, our our very wiring, uh, the, the way we think uh, about how a president and a White House produces news. Now we're going to go back to something that, you know, is going to be far more traditional, but we've got to remember what things were like before Trump.
1: That's a great question. Yeah. And Caitlin, I do want you to weigh in on that, especially as you pointed out, you have these embeds, right? Um, both uh, the networks have embeds. M- maybe this was their first campaign. You have reporters who now covering Washington, who 2016 might have been their first campaign. This is normal to them.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, just from a totally process standpoint, putting my old communications hat on for a minute. (laughs) But I think, you know, we had a president um, who was his own chief strategist, his own media (laughs) advisor and communications director. And that is going to change. And we're already seeing it with traditional rollouts um, from President-elect Biden. And they are giving certain outlets scoops and they're floating trial balloons um, to put people's names out there for cabinet positions to see, to test the waters on how they're received. Whereas for the past four years, we've all been living on Twitter to see if the president's gonna fire someone or what he's gonna say that day. And he was making his own news. So I think just from a news gathering and consumption standpoint, things are going to be very different for us and for the public. And I think just as candidates and lawmakers need to have know who they are, have a message, know their audience. I think we need to know who our audience is, because we're going to have to say, OK, if we want to break news and be in a spot to roll something out, what do we have to Like, what can we provide that others can't? And what do we want to invest in? Because I think a lot of the issues, what what I expect is news organizations are probably going to beef up their Hill teams and policy teams, um, because a lot of news is going to be breaking at an agency level and what negotiations are happening between the White House and the Senate and You know, so far, I think the transition team seems pretty disciplined. And it's a traditional communications operation, to the extent that there's squeaky wheels who are leaking news, it's probably going to be coming from elsewhere. And so I think those are all new things when we've been dealing with, you know, really the principal being the deliverer of all news and making his own decisions every step of the way. And I think that's just going to be something that was normal before. And we're going to see, you know, get accustomed to again.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. This idea that you no longer have to have 16 people on rotation at the White House, and instead redeploy those people. I mean, is that what you're already starting to do is to say we don't we don't need this level of we're not going to need this level of coverage at the White House?
2: We're just starting to at least at CBS, you know, thinking about what happens to all campaign reporters and beyond having discussions about where to, you know, what to do with them next. And I think, policy and agencies and the Hill, um, you know, given what they've done, putting them on some of those beats that we haven't had as covered would make a lot of sense.
1: Ben, do you think that interest now in politics, it goes back to being boring once again, and it's just dorks like us who love covering politics that stay in it, but that this idea that politics can dominate our lives in the way it has for the last four years, regular people being engaged in it. Is that is that era over now? Well, I think
4: two, there are two things. One is I do think that people have been, you know, feel that politics in the United States can go really off the rails, can really change. That this, this The realm of possibility and imagination is much wider than they thought. And it can either be really inspiring if, if you support Trump or really scary if you don't. And I don't think that feeling is going to go away. I think the idea that, you know, politics is like this sport that you can watch for fun, but doesn't really have an impact on your life is something that people no longer feel and that are good. And when you try to talk about politics that way, I think a lot of our audiences are kind of disgusted by it, actually, the sort of horse race stuff. On the other hand, I think day to day, yeah, I think people are going to not be interested in the negotiations on Capitol Hill and the like, you know, outrage that there were only six votes in committee and that's this incredible (laughs) violation then actually we got to switch sides and we're in favor of there being six votes in committee and all this stuff that's so complicated and process driven that it's hard to understand for regular people and also you know the um, Hollywood hasn't released any new movie like well there was a a couple of movies maybe people saw Tenet but that's about it in theaters for a year but there's this huge stockpile of entertainment that is just sitting there in the studios waiting for theaters to reopen for theatrical reopenings production until on entertainment TV stopped for months in the spring. It is back up and running. I mean, I think there's going to be a lot better content coming out next year than politics and people are going to have a lot to tune into.
1: (laughs) Or is it going to be all politics related content? I mean, are there going to be 46 different Trump biopics or are people going to be over it? Does
4: anybody want to watch that? I don't I think we all I mean, I think Trump sort of defied, you know, fiction, right? Like I know I don't I think there's going to be a ton of like great entertainment coming out next year and people are going to tune out. And then, you know, I mean, all I want to do is read like travel stories for summer 2021. Mm.
3: And, and Amy, I, I, to add on that, I mean, Joe Biden built his campaign on that calculation, essentially, that, that people didn't want to have to worry about the president tweeting in the middle of the night. And like the uh, Obama said at a bunch of rallies towards the end, wouldn't it be nice if you didn't have to think about your president every day? And it seems like such a basic thing, but, You know, he has become so much of the the news diet for everybody that uh, and Biden probably benefited, at least on the margins, from the perception that, you know, like him or not, I won't have to worry about him, you know, starting a Twitter war with somebody randomly and and just you know the, the that slower pace it may frustrate us in the news business because we'd love every white house to leak like a sieve we'd love to to you know the the palace intrigue stories they're they're catnip they're terrific stories there's so much great reporting that's happened at at and around the white house these last couple of years i mean just incredible stuff stuff you never ever get out of any white house that's come out and i anticipate There's not going to be anything like it again for a while. The Biden world isn't going to be like that. And we're going to be back to, you know, a much more managed and we'll be frustrated by it at times. And no doubt that White House reporters will, you know, be calling for more access and sound off about things that are that are walled off. But then the the, the Biden team's calculation is let's go back to the way things were. And people sort of liked it that way. And if they're not thinking about politics every waking minute, that that's on, on net a good thing.
1: You guys, I could keep this conversation going for a long time, but we don't have forever. But I appreciate it so much. Rick Klein, Caitlin Conant, Ben Smith, thank you guys so much. Great to be with you. Thanks, Amy. After dominating news coverage for the last four years it's sometimes hard to remember what life was like before Donald Trump entered the White House. The constant chaos and drama was both a frustration and a boon for the media industrial complex. Lots of political reporters, traditionally the behind the scenes types, are now household names, thanks to their ubiquitous presence on cable TV. Subscriptions to many big national newspapers skyrocketed. The voracious appetite for all things Trump launched websites and podcasts and YouTube channels. But with Trump gone, what will fill this vacuum? Let's hope that news organizations use all this talent they've amassed to really dig into and explain the critical challenges that face this country. We're still in the middle of a pandemic. The latest jobs reports show a slowing in the economic recovery. Americans are hopeful about the prospect of a vaccine in the near future, but access to it is going to be a major concern and issue. On January 20th, a new person will enter the White House. And this provides a new opportunity for news organizations to break their addiction to personality and palace intrigue and to focus instead on how Washington is or isn't working on the very real problems that are sitting right in front of us. We're just about a month away from the start of the new Congress on January 3rd, and over the last few weeks I've had the opportunity to talk with a number of the incoming freshmen. It's a busy time for them as they staff up, network with their colleagues, do interviews, and of course attend new member orientation, much of it remotely. But it's also a great time to get an unvarnished view from them of their expectations before they begin their new jobs. This week, I caught up with
0: Richie Torres. I'm the congressman-elect for New York 15, the South Bronx, and I'm entering Congress after serving in the city council for seven years.
1: I started out by asking him to tell me a bit about his district and the people who live there.
0: New York 15 is the South Bronx, uh, which is said to be the poorest congressional district in America. It's arguably ground zero for racially concentrated poverty, uh, even before the outbreak of the novel coronavirus, when unemployment was at historic lows in New York City around 4%, the unemployment rate in the South Bronx could be as high as 15.6%. And that's before you factor in structural unemployment. Uh, More than half the residents in the South Bronx pay more than half their income toward their rent. And that's before you factor in the bare necessities of life, like food and transportation, utilities and prescription drugs. Um, And even though it's, It's known to be the poorest congressional district in America. I would argue that COVID-19 has shown the South Bronx to be the essential congressional district. It's the home of essential workers who put their lives on the line uh, so that most of us could safely shelter in place during the peak of the pandemic. Uh, Many in your audience will know that New York City at one point was the epicenter of the pandemic and the Bronx in particular, the South Bronx was the epicenter of the epicenter.
1: Right, and you grew up in this district.
0: My father is from Mott Haven. My mother's actually farther east in, in the Rockstack. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in a okay. public housing development in the East Bronx, uh, right across the street from what eventually became Trump Golf
1: Can you talk about that and its influence on you and, and your decision to be involved in public service. You're a pretty young person. Uh, You're in your early 30s. This isn't your first public office. You'd been in the New York City Council. So if you could talk about those sort of times that you had growing up and, and how it brought you to this point.
0: It all began in the Bronx. You know, I spent most of my life in poverty. I was raised by a single mother who had to raise three children on minimum wage, which in the 1990s was $4.25 an hour. And I grew up in public housing, uh, living in conditions of mold and mildew leaks and lead without consistent heat and hot water in the winter. And I think my life is something of a metaphor because I grew up right across the street from Ferry Point Park, which is home to Trump Golf Course. And as I saw the conditions in my own home get worse every day, the government had invested more than hundred billion dollars in a golf course ultimately named after Donald Trump. And I remember wondering to myself at the time, what does it say about our society that we're willing to invest more money in a golf course than in the homes of low income, black and brown Americans. And so that experience of inequality in the shadow of Trump golf course uh, is what inspired me first to become a housing organizer. And then eventually I took the leap of faith and I ran for public office.
1: Talk about your decision to be as open as you are, not just your struggle with opioid addiction, as you pointed out, trying to reconcile your sexual identity, but sharing that. I mean, you, when you decide to go public office, obviously you become a public figure, but there are of yourself you don't have to share, and you chose to do that. Why?
0: You know, I suspect that I've been shaped by the experience of of coming out i feel like the process of coming out as an lgbtq person the integrity it demands from you teaches you an ethic of radical authenticity right? it teaches you how to be honest and open about who you are and so that's an ethic that i've applied to every aspect of my life both political and personal and i feel like as a public figure i want to inspire hope i want to represent the hope that those struggling with depression with mental illness uh, can overcome the odds and have a fighting chance at a decent life. And I feel I have an obligation to do my part in breaking the stigma and the shame that too often surrounds mental illness. You know, I have no shame in admitting that I struggle with depression, that I take an antidepressant every day, and that I'm living proof that mental health care can enable you to lead a productive life, both as a person and as a professional. And, and for me, you know, health is a human right, and that's especially true of mental health care.
1: So you'll be a freshman member. Democrats still have the majority, it's a slimmer one than was expected, but a majority. So um, the Democratic Party will be in a position of power. But it's not clear yet what's going on in the Senate. Talk about some of your expectations going forward, especially if Democrats don't have complete control of Washington and what things you think the Biden administration should be pushing for no matter what?
0: Well, my expectations depend on control of the Senate, right? If, if the Democrats win control of the Senate, then I would make a strong case that we need to build democratic power as a precondition for bold progressive policymaking. I would advocate immediately legislating statehood for both D.C. and Puerto Rico, which would likely yield four new democratic U.S. senators and would counterbalance the structural bias that both the Electoral College and the U.S. Senate has against the Democratic Party. So that to me is a precondition for bold progressive governance in an age of divided government. I would argue that we should focus on just bread and butter issues. You know, one issue about which I'm passionate is the child tax credit. The structure of the child tax credit is so regressive at the moment that it excludes a third of American families, the poorest families, and the regressivity of the child tax credit is most egregious in the South Bronx, where two thirds of families are excluded from the full benefit. And so, if we were to extend the child tax credit to the poorest families in America, we would cut child poverty by forty percent.
1: This seems like one of those issues, though, that whether Democrats are in charge of all of Washington, in other words, whether they have majority in the Senate or not. This seems like something that could get bipartisan support, does it not?
0: Potentially. I mean, you know, one can never underestimate the obstructionism of the Republican Party under Mitch McConnell, but there could conceivably be a bipartisan consensus for the child tax credit because it's a tool for strengthening American families.
1: What do you think of the picks that the president-elect has put forward thus far in general, but also since we're on the issue of the economy, specifically on his picks for Treasury Secretary and other economic advisors.
0: I am supportive of President-elect Biden's administration picks. I, 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 there's a clearly a recognition on their part that the priority has to be to stimulate the economy in a time of depression level unemployment. Uh, the, the main priority has to be to put people back to work and to put money in the pockets of working families and working people, and to ensure that our state and local governments have economic relief. You know, it, I'm from New York and we've never had a moment in the history of our state where the state government and the local government and the public transit system were all caught in an ever deepening fiscal crisis. Like without an infusion of federal funding, America's largest city, New York City, is in danger of becoming a shadow of its former self. So I have full confidence that the Biden administration, the future Biden administration, recognizes the need to support our families, our small businesses, and our state and local governments, as well as our public transit systems.
1: Did you want to see some members of that team who come from a more progressive background, come from outside of sort of traditional Washington or, you know, sort of establishment backgrounds?
0: I want a team that is both progressive and effective. And the team he's put together, President-elect Biden has put together, largely passes the test. Um, This is a team that recognizes the need to sustain and strengthen the social safety net. So I'm largely pleased with the team. And look, there's a mass mobilization in America in favor of a progressive agenda. There's no doubt in my mind that the Biden administration is going to be responsive to that movement.
1: As you probably know, there's a narrative that's been uh, developing, especially post-election, that there is something of a, a rift or a battle for the soul of the party, of the Democratic Party, between the moderates and the more progressive members. And it, it sort of burst into view post-election with some moderate members criticizing liberal ones for pushing an agenda that they say lost them seats in the election. What do you make of all of this? How real is it?
0: There, There's certainly a divide uh, within the party. Um, I would argue that the central divide in the Democratic Party is not between moderates and progressives. It's more between what I call purist and pluralist. Right? There are purists who are intent on ideologically purifying the party challenging incumbents who are thought to be too ideologically impure to effectuate the kind of structural change the country needs. And then there were pluralists who recognize that the Democratic Party has no choice but to be a big tent in order to remain competitive in purple districts and make majorities. Uh, You know, I think purists tend to be movement progressives, but not all progressives are purists. There, there are plenty of progressives in Congress who operate within the system.
1: Do you put yourself in that category?
0: I do. I would identify myself as a progressive and a pluralist.
1: And have you been meeting with both? I don't want to call it both sides, but you've been meeting with progressives, moderate, other members of the Democratic caucus I know within your class, it's you're a pretty small freshman class, but have you met folks beyond that and had conversations on your own with them?
3: We
0: have. It's challenging in a, in a world of COVID, but I've had yeah. conversations within my freshman class and across the ideological spectrum within, largely within the Democratic Party. You know, Washington is about relationships. You're only as strong as the relationships you have, and you have to build a broad cross section of relationships in order to be effective in Washington, D.C. So it's been a priority of mine to build relationships with both moderates and progressives, pluralist and purist uh, Democrats of of every ilk.
1: Well, Congressman-elect, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Please stay safe, and uh, we'll see you here in Washington soon enough. It was
0: a pleasure, take care.
1: Richie Torres is the Congressman-elect for New York's 15th Congressional District. To hear an extended version of this conversation or to listen to any of my conversations with the incoming freshman members of Congress, head on over to politicswithamywalter.org slash freshmen. Georgia has been a focal point in the political world since the state turned blue in November for the first time in almost 30 years. On January 5th, Georgia will hold two runoff elections that will determine which party controls the U.S. Senate. Democrats need to win both of them to take the majority. Republican Senators Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue are running against Democrats John Ossoff and Reverend Raphael Warnock. Gradual demographic change, especially in the metro areas around Savannah and Atlanta, have pushed this one-time Republican stronghold into swing state territory. At the same time, grassroots organizations, many of them led by Black women, have spent years organizing and registering voters, especially Black voters. Among them is Deborah Scott, the executive director of Georgia Stand-Up an organization working to register and turn out voters and voters of color.
5: Because Georgia Stand-Up has been around for the last 16 years, we have a strong base of community allies and support throughout the state, but we're primarily in the metro area, which is 13 to 30 counties. That's where 60% of the population in Georgia uh, really live.
1: I talked to Deborah Scott about what Stand Up Georgia is doing for the runoff elections and the challenges of getting people to show up for an election taking place just a couple of days after we ring in the new year.
5: In this election, which is of course we know one of the most important elections of our lifetime, we can say we know as a group of nonprofits organizations that are working together. We have built this base over time, 10, 15 years of constantly doing voter registration and voter education and advocacy that that, that the state would eventually become progressive. So we had the metro area that was progressive, but the rest of the state was falling behind. And so we saw that we could be of service to the community by enhancing our voter registration capacity, enhancing the capacity to do canvassing in the community Community. We did a million point nine calls last cycle. Um, so we have a phone bank and a text bank, and we have canvassers, and we're doing special events. What we're trying to do in this particular election is pretend that November never happened, and this is the first election of the year.
1: Well, that's my question to you. Maybe it's a two part one. How much of this is still registering folks who maybe? even after all the work that you all have done did not register in time for the 2020 November election? And how much of this is making sure people who did turn out and who voted and who registered in time for the November election come out again right after New Year's to vote in a special election, two special elections?
5: Well, first of all, there are 23 thousand young people that were not old enough to vote in November that are now eligible for this upcoming election. And so one of the things that we're doing is reaching out to the school systems to give them a civics education um, as part of their curriculum this week, because we want them to get them registered to vote. So we've sent them QR codes and and, um, Bitly codes so that they can send it directly to their students that are studying at home so that they can get registered to vote. So if they're 17 and a half in Georgia and they're going to be 18 by the time of the election, they can actually vote. So the deadline for voter registration is actually Monday, December 7th. So right now we're in that last push to get folks that need to get registered to vote, maybe they didn't know about it or maybe they didn't get the information in on time. But then also people that are frequent voters, we often have people in our family that you just assume are registered to vote. And so we're going back to our voters and saying, okay, Mrs. Jackson, thank you so much for voting. Look what you did. This is a historic election. So can you give me a list of the five people in your family that aren't registered to vote? We don't even ask her, are there five people, right? We're asking her, we know there are five people in your family that need to vote. And they oh yeah, my cousin needs to. And so we get them engaged in this process and we challenge her to go back to her family and say, this is important and we need to register to vote. We focus a lot on Black women because Because that's the base of our operation here, because uh, many of the community campaigns we work on are, quite frankly, led by women. So black and brown women are really doing their thing here in Georgia. And, you know, forget about this last November election. That is done. This is a new election. And you have an opportunity not just to make history, because that doesn't appeal to somebody when you're talking to them at their door. You want to talk to them about their pain points. What's going on in their neighborhood? Is the street light working? Is there a pothole in the middle of your street? Are your neighborhoods organizing? Did you know this development project is coming? We're talking to them about what is their family's. Point of pain and how the electoral process can actually help to solve that, and we kind of move into well, okay. So the unemployment rate is high, and then that might lead into a conversation. Yeah, I have two people in my family that are not um, working. Okay, were you were you able to get unemployment? Oh, the line was so long, and we couldn't. We didn't get it. So we we what we try to do is to get them connected to. Some of the issues and the problems that they have are really policy issues.
1: I know you all are a nonpartisan organization. You're just encouraging people uh, to go and vote. And yet we also know that the president and many Republicans in the state are suggesting that this election in Georgia was fraudulent, that the secretary of state and the the voting machines were rigged. Is that impacting, do you think, people's trust in this process and their desire to actually go out and cast a ballot?
5: So in our communities that we work with are mostly black and brown. They are used in particularly in Georgia. They are used to voter suppression tactics. And so part of what we try to teach them is don't worry about the noise of the politics of all of this you still have a responsibility. I think that they they are voter fatigue based on the ads that they see. They're so negative and the news that is happening every day that people are, are like, I don't want to hear it anymore. But when you have that one-on-one conversation with them, whether you're having it at the phone or on the door, when you make it personal and you talk about the historic factor in this and not only did it make did they make it hard not just this year, but 40 years ago and 20 years ago, this is just a part of a continuum, but we still have an obligation and a responsibility to say that in spite of these obstacles, you still have to do it. And so we put voter protection in place. We have attorneys at polling locations. We have organizations that are ready to assist if there's a problem at the polls. So we're just acting as if that doesn't exist, but setting up the apparatus that, if they run into problems, that we have a remedy for them.
1: Deborah Scott is executive director of Georgia Stand Up. If you are a Georgia voter, December seventh is the voter registration deadline. Early voting begins on December fourteenth, and the runoff elections will take place on January fifth. We're going to stick with Georgia for a minute. In assessing how this once Republican stronghold has become a swing state, most of the attention has been on the influence of the state's black voters and white suburban voters. That makes sense given their sizable share of the population. However, the fastest growing group of voters in the state are Asian American and Pacific Islanders, AAPI for short. While they make up a significantly smaller share of the vote, their influence has been felt at the congressional and statewide level. According to an early analysis of the November elections by a Democratic firm, voter participation by Asian-American and Pacific Islanders in Georgia was up 91 percent from 2016. I spoke with Amy B. Wang, a national politics reporter for The Washington Post, who has been covering the role AAPI voters played in 2020 and could play in the special elections in January.
6: Asian-American Pacific Islanders are the fastest growing demographic in Georgia, but the percentage of eligible voters in the state is um, only about 4% or I think 240,000 or so, which Mm. on paper doesn't seem like a lot, maybe especially when you look at the um, number of black voters and Latino voters, but they historically had had some of the lowest turnout and this year, I think um, one Democratic firm said that they had like a 91% increase in Mm. turnout, And so that's more than enough to swing a close raise. Exit polls were showing that they had preferred Biden to Trump by like a two to one margin. And so when you've got a presidential race that's decided by, you know, 12,000 votes or something, that um, that's more than enough to to make up the margin of victory.
1: And we're hearing it too, it's, so much talk about the suburbs and what's changing around the suburbs of Atlanta. And it it seems as if that's where so much of this growth in the AAPI um, community has been.
6: Is is that what you had picked up too in your reporting? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, Groups have been out there organizing and trying to get Asian voters engaged for years and years. And even before this election year, before the presidential race, you could see some of those changes happening, especially in Gwinnett County in the local races. Um, Gwinnett County includes a lot of the Atlanta suburbs, I think, north uh, uh-huh. northeast of Atlanta. And it's about 12% um, AAPI population there. But I think the county commission there started out in 2016 as an all white, all Republican board, and over the years, because of the work on the ground, that eventually flipped to an um, all minority, uh, all Democrat board this year. And I also saw it in the seventh congressional district, which includes Gwinnett, um, and I believe that's also about twelve percent Asian. But that was the only seat in the country that Democrats flipped this year, um, aside from two in North Carolina that were redistricted, but. Carolyn Bordeaux won that seat by fewer than 9,000 votes. And so a lot of the progressive organizers there say that, like, for sure, the surge of AAPI voters there um, definitely helped Dems take that seat.
1: Yeah, we interviewed her soon after the election, and she also credited the AAPI community there. So talk to us about who's doing this this organizing and the kinds of issues that um, they are talking about as they are in the AAPI community.
6: A lot of these have been grassroots groups. Um, they there are so many, almost too many to name <laughs> right here, but they have been, I think, for at least a decade on the ground, trying to trying to give Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders a bigger voice, just like, the New Georgia Project or Fair Fight Action, Stacey Abrams' effort to, to register new voters and new voters of color, especially, you you just had <laughs> the, the long, almost unglamorous, uh, years-long work of door knocking, tabling outside supermarkets, this sort of thing, um, really having conversations with people and trying to explain to them that it's important to... Um, to, to be active politically. And part of that is as simple as casting your vote. The organizers I spoke to said, you know, this has been years and years and years in the making um, of us just being out there trying to get people engaged. And this year we had record turnout across the nation. Um, it's a little bit difficult to pinpoint exactly why there was such a surge. You know, some of it has been President Trump's rhetoric against Muslims, against um, some in the Asian community. You know, he's referred to the coronavirus as... Uh, the Chinese flu, and that has been shown to increase incidence of hate and discrimination against AAPI populations, regardless of whether they're Chinese. And uh, some organizers said, you know, we could tell people, some people were excited, um, or excited to visibly volunteer because of Kamala Harris's presence in uh-huh. the race as the first um, Black and Asian American woman vice presidential candidate and now vice president elect. But those types of things are, are a little hard to gauge, but by and large, it's definitely been these groups on the ground, registering voters, organizing them, talking to them for years and years. And as one said, this was just the year that everything sort of came together to be enough to flip what has traditionally been a really red state. Right. And that's the really interesting point
1: now, which is we're looking to a sp- two special elections on January 5th, and no longer is... Donald Trump, the president, um, it's we know that Kamala Harris will be the vice president. So do you think there is the same incentive for these voters to come out, show up, you know, uh, just a few days a- after the new year?
6: Well, the organizers I talked to are certainly hoping so. I know how are they,
1: how are they motivating them? Yeah. How, what are they saying? Yeah. What's the message to say, OK, well, I know you. <laughs> we got the outcome we wanted on November 3rd, but here's why you need to show up in January.
6: Well, I mean, it's a lot of it is the same message they would tell non-API voters, which is that without control of the Senate, um, it almost maybe doesn't matter that Joe Biden is president. You really need, uh, you need a Democratic majority Senate to enact some of the policies and suggested changes that the new administration wants to make. And so that is really going to be the test for them a lot of folks I talked to said that the challenge actually for them will not necessarily be that there's not a presidential race, but for engaging these new voters, um, a lot of whom maybe didn't want to talk about, you know, highly charged politics, what got them engaged was like local races, school Mm -hmm. board races, um, public utility commission races, you know, things where they could say, uh, look, this is going to be what, who decides whether it's safe enough for your kids to go back to school or your, you know, um, your bills and that sort of thing? And so they said, without those down ballot races, that's going to be a, a test for them to go out mm. and kind of get into the uh, the muddy waters of just really like U.S. Senate politics um, to turn out voters for on January fifth.
1: Amy B. Wang, thank you for coming on and talking with me about this. I really appreciate it.
6: Okay, thank you, Amy.
1: Amy B. Wang is a national politics reporter for The Washington Post. That's all for us today. Our senior producer is Amber Hall. Patricia Jacob is our associate producer. Polly Urugu is our digital editor. David Gable is our executive assistant. Jake Howitt is our director and sound designer. Vince Fairchild is our board op and engineer. Our executive producer is Lee Hill. And if you want to send us a tweet, I'm at Amy E. Walter. The show is at The Takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. It's Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.